the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Time now for the Church of the Week, showcasing churches and pulpit ministries from across the greater San Francisco Bay Area. And on today's program, a couple of very special guests joining us from Westgate Church. Campus is located, of course, in San Jose. We'll get you all the details about that momentarily. Meanwhile, it's a delight to have join us on the program today, the lead pastor of Westgate, Jay Kim, along with executive pastor Andy Gridley. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. I was struck taking a look at your website in terms of some of the core values that represent the life and ministry of Westgate, um, that some of those top values include valuing Jesus over everything, valuing integrity over image management, and the one that really caught my attention was valuing for over against. Isn't it ironic these days that oftentimes, I, I think if you engage in conversation with a non-believer and ask them, perhaps they've never had any affiliation with a church in their entire life, and you just ask them, well, you know, what do Christians believe in from your understanding? I suspect that we would wind up with a laundry list of all the things that we are against and very little articulation as to the things that we are actually for. How problematic, and let me start with Pastor Kim, how problematic is that in terms of the way the world views the church and most importantly, our ability or inability to impact it for the sake of the kingdom? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Yeah, I guess I'll respond by going back in our history a little bit. Uh, My predecessor, who's still on our staff, his name's Steve Clifford, he was the lead pastor of Westgate for 20 years, 20 really fruitful, amazing years. Um, Very early in his tenure, he and the elders asked a question, you know, if our church burned down tomorrow, would any of our neighbors, our literal physical neighbors, would any of them care? And they realized the answer to that question very quickly became, no, I don't think anyone would really care because our church at the time, at least sort of based on their um, assessment of things wasn't really, you know, for anything in our city. It was a, it was a gathering of, you know, Christians on a Sunday for a couple of hours. And so because of that, Steve and and the elders and the leadership team at the time um, got really intentional about trying to express love to our neighbors, the neighbors in our city and our County and our literal physical neighbors, you know, in our neighborhoods and, and places of work and school and all of that. And it's not that we do it perfectly. It's not that we do it even well all the time, but it, it certainly is a, is a value for us. Um, and we, we want our city to know, uh, you know, whether they're Christian or not, those who are, even those who are far from God, we want them to know that um, we are for them because God is for them and we want to embody the way of Jesus, which for us, really simply put, is the way of love. You know, love toward God, love toward one another as brothers and sisters, and love toward our neighbors. So um, I, I think, you know, it's not to say we've, you know, figured it out. We certainly haven't, and we've learned quite a bit from lots of other amazing churches in the area, as well as sort of all over the tree. But I think if more and more, you know, communities of faith, um, churches, can embody that, you know, communicating to whatever sort of um, city or town or neighborhood they're in, that they are for the city, for the town, for the neighborhood, because Jesus is for them, uh, then I think, you know, there are really bright days ahead for the church. And, you know, I think, uh, Pastor Andy, that really encapsulates the very core message of the gospel. I mean, if we can't come to the conclusion that God is for us, given all that he has done on our behalf way before we even recognize it, certainly as somebody coming to the cross, that that inkling of recognition of the incredible sacrifice 
that God made to send his only begotten son on our behalf. Talk about the ultimate sacrifice. If that isn't indicative of the notion that God is really for us, and maybe that's the core message that that a lost and dying world around us today really needs to hear that that God is not some big monster up in the sky, you know, with a club ready to hit you. Now, that isn't to suggest that grace is cheap, and and quite frankly, I'm of the viewpoint that if we don't understand God's judgment and God's righteousness, that it waters down the gospel of no effect. So one end balances the other. But that notion of people being able to hear a message of hope that God is so for you he sacrificed his only son because he wants relationship with you. Yeah, really well said. Yeah, and I would say, first and foremost, I need that message. I need that hope. Uh, you know, coming out of the season we've all been in, uh, with, you know, COVID and just lockdown and just so much uncertainty in our world, to have this clarion message of hope that is not just a platitude, but as you said, was demonstrated by Jesus himself. That's everything. Uh, I have the privilege of leading our our staff team. And recently, inspired by a National Day of Prayer, we had a, a time of prayer as a staff. One of the things that struck me as we were praying for our city, uh, as Jay said, you know, our, our that God would increase our love for um, those who call our area home, um, is that when Jesus looked out uh, at, at this massive crowd, it says he has compassion. And it actually said that um, he saw that, that the harvest was plentiful. And I just think so many times as we're talking about being four, I think it starts with having eyes that can see um, like Jesus, that actually even in the darkness, even in adversity, even in the very different viewpoints, et cetera, Jesus looked and he saw opportunity. He saw an opportunity for the kingdom to come in people's lives individually and collectively. And so my heart, our heart as a staff, we were just praying like, God, give us your eyes to see um, not just what we're against, but but your kingdom on the move and how we can join you in that here in our city. And it strikes me that that plentiful harvest that you articulate and certainly scripture talks about suggests that Contrary to what seems to be ever-increasing common acceptance, that, well, there's not a real spiritual hunger out there. People are finding means of getting satisfaction spiritually so, through so many other methods. I, I wonder if it's really not so much that as it is that there is a genuine hunger out there. The problem is that people are looking for genuine, or maybe better put, authentic answers, and on an increasing basis, when they turn to the the church, and I speak of it as, as, a, as an organization and less about the actual body of Christ, that oftentimes they find, what's the old adage, where our, 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 our faith, our theology is a mile wide and only an inch deep? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, I think maybe one of the points you're making is, is that, you know, I don't want to get too granular here, but uh, our, our church, at least for our city, is a, is a somewhat sizable church you know we have multiple congregations in two different locations and i think the assumption has been that if you want to get you know big um not that that's the goal but if you want to get big you got to uh you know be very broad broad reaching so sometimes that gets translated into well, don't get too deep, you know, don't get into the weeds of theology and what the Bible says about X, Y, and Z. Don't be too confrontational, you know. Um, I don't think the attractional model is necessarily a bad thing, but sometimes it gets sort of typecast as, you know, just preach the fluffy stuff. And at least in our small corner of the world, what we have discovered is that an unbelieving world what they're not interested in, what they're not captivated or captured by is um, the fluffy stuff, you know, the feel-good stuff. And I think it's because there is a deep intrinsic hunger in human beings, Christian or not, in human beings to find like actual genuine meaning and purpose and joy. And even in a post-truth world, I think there is a desire, especially today where everything seems so in flux. Um, I think that there is a desire for uh, truth, you know, something that's anchored in a sort of timelessness, um, something that's transcendent. 
And uh, we're, we're seeing that, at least in our context. So uh, I think that it is possible, you know, to um, be very wide, but also be very deep, or at least pursue depth faithfully. Um, and it's not just us. I, I'm, I'm, you know, and Andy and I, in our conversations with other church leaders in town and across the country, it seems like there is a move in that direction that one of the most missional evangelistic things you can do is actually teach the Bible and, um, you know, uh, uh, sort of, um, put on full display the richness and beauty and depth of the gospel. So that makes me really hopeful about the future, uh, not just of our church, but the church uh, at large. Think about the fact that for generations, there was a, a very significant portion of Americans that had a fundamental acceptance in the belief of God. Now we fast forward to where engagement becomes so critically important because for so many of our neighbors, we may be the only representative that many of these people will ever see. The question is, when they walk away from their experience with us, will they go, wow, that was really something special? Or will they be offended and walk away? You know, the Scripture tells us that, that the, the Scripture, the Bible, is an offense to those that are perishing. I think sometimes, though, Christians get that passage mixed up and they think we ought to be offensive. Yeah, when you look at Jesus, I, I mean, one of the things he's criticized so much in his earthly ministry is he just really enjoyed people and people who were of very different values. I mean, and you have to start asking yourself, did he hang out with people despite the mission? Did he enjoy people and prioritize people and allow people to interrupt his schedule despite his mission? Or was that a, a crucial part of his mission? Mm -hmm. And I'll be really honest. I, I, I am a bear and native. I'm like fifth generation. I'm all about my own calendar, my own priorities. I don't like my stuff getting jacked or interrupted. So I'm not very good at what we're talking about, but I, I am asking the Holy Spirit to soften my heart and help me continue to get better at prioritizing um, the people the way Jesus does, uh, to engage them the way that Jesus models and calls each of us. Let's spend a couple of minutes as our time begins to wind down talking about what folks will find as they come to Westgate Church. So somebody's new to the San Francisco Bay Area looking for a new church home, um, kind of give me that, that, that thumbnail sketch, that, that 30,000-foot-high view, so to speak, of the life and ministry of Westgate Church. Man, I love this church. I, there's many great churches around, and I have what I appreciate about Westgate Church is one of the, the healthiest leadership cultures I've been a part of as far as the staff team, but also the the, peop, the the lay leaders who call this place home. It's just a really beautiful space where the, there's a sense that um, not perfect, nobody's perfect, but there's a sense that we are really taking seriously this this call to, to become more like Jesus and those three loves, loving God, loving one another uh, in, within the church family, and then loving our global and local neighbors. And uh, it's an exciting place to be. I think there are great programs, but I think my prayer often is that as folks uh, come to Westgate, maybe for the first time, that they, they really would feel like this is a, a place that they can call home and, and a group of people they can eventually call a family uh, as they learn and live the way of Jesus. That's how I would refer to it. And, and how would you critique the Sunday morning preaching? <laughs> Careful now. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's actually interesting. Our predecessor, um, Steve Clifford, our, our previous lead pastor, very gifted communicator, but he was um, very thoughtful about how, uh, empowering several people on staff uh, to communicate regularly. So there's kind of a, a, a team of, of speakers. So Jay's incredibly gifted. And, um, you know, if Jay's traveling or something like that, there's just a sense of we're in this together as a team. And it's not so personality driven. I, I actually really appreciate that as well. That looks a lot like the uh, the first century church, doesn't it? It looks like a lot like the church in the Book of Acts. Uh, Pastor Kim, as our time winds down together, uh, for folks eavesdropping on our conversation today, maybe a word of of personal invitation to them. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having us on. Um, honored, and uh, we just want everyone listening. Maybe church leaders are listening. Um, I, I hope that churches in town who know us would would agree with this statement but 
again, we don't do it perfectly, but Westgate is a church that is at least pursuing um, trying to be the sort of church that is about Jesus and about the kingdom of God here in the Silicon Valley over and above just our church. You know, we uh, one of our values is that we value kingdom over brand. So we're not trying to promote or fly high the banner of Westgate Church. We are trying to promote and um, fly high the banner of Jesus and all churches uh, in town that are that are doing the same. And we're we're with you and we're for you. So whatever we can do to come alongside you, we're, we're here. Um, but yeah, for folks who might be looking for a church, yeah, I agree with everything Andy just said. Um, we, uh, we're just ordinary people. We're just like normal, ordinary people navigating the complexities of life, trying our best every single day, uh, like Andy said, to learn the way of Jesus and not just learn it and know it, but to really live the way of Jesus in all of our lives and to do it together. Uh, we we don't think that it's possible really to do it alone, which is why one of the reasons why the local church matters so much. So uh, we have really tried to emphasize um, uh, uh, what we call the pathway to belonging. So um, yeah, whoever's listening, if if you're sort of living in isolation or feeling lonely or doing life alone and you're looking to belong and you're ever in the San Jose area and you're looking for a church, um, we'd love to have you. And uh, let us know you're new. We've got like little welcome table at all of our uh, congregations, and uh, and yeah, we we try our best to be really intentional about coming alongside folks um, as they find their way into belonging. We know that it takes time, but um, yeah, we're, we're sort of a big church, but we try to be as intimate uh, and as as you were saying, sort of like you know personal and one-on-one as possible as people try to seek out belonging. So, uh, yeah, if, if that's you, we'd, we'd love to meet you. I would love to meet you. Um, feel free to swing by anytime. You're always welcome. Two campus locations, one located at 1735 Saratoga Avenue in San Jose, the other at 6601 Camden Avenue in San Jose. Service times 9 a.m., 1045 a.m., and the Saratoga Avenue campus also has a Sunday afternoon service at 4 p.m. Service is also available on Camden Avenue in Spanish. Details available on the web. Go to westgatechurch.org. That's westgatechurch.org. Our thanks to Pastor Andy Gridley, Executive Pastor, and Lead Pastor, Pastor Jay Kim. Guys, thanks so much for the time today. Thank you. Uh, Let's begin here. I want to show you the photo of a young man named Lu Haozhong. And uh, this is a photo of him that the New York Times took. But uh, before he took this photo, he took a very similar photo in April of 2021. He took a photo of himself laying in bed in a dark room, and he posted it on his social media feeds, and he titled the photo, Lying Flat is Justice. Lying Flat is Justice. And in the description of the photo, one of the things he said was, I have discovered that I enjoy doing nothing. And this caught on. Um, now, some of this is fair that Hao Zhang enjoyed doing nothing. He had spent many years uh, working in a Chinese factory under very harsh conditions, underpaid, and found himself totally exhausted. And so one day, he packed all of his belongings into a small duffel bag, and he got on his bike, and he bicycled 1,300 miles to Tibet, got odd jobs, and now is living in Tibet on 60 U.S. dollars a month. And inspired by Hua Zhang's story, young people all throughout China took up this movement called Lying Flat. And it was, it was almost like a justice movement, that life is not about working so hard to the point of exhaustion. And Hajong inspired this movement because people are exhausted. But it's not just in China, right? It's right here at home. Let me show you um, a tweet from a young woman named Becca McNair. Becca McNair in June of 2021 tweeted, I do not want to have a career. I want to sit on the porch. 
I mean, let me, let me tell you something. Becca McNair is not a Twitter celebrity. She's not a social media influencer. Most of her tweets get about a dozen likes. This tweet got more than 392,000 likes, and it was retweeted more than 81,000 times. I don't want to have a career. I want to sit on the porch. And hundreds of thousands of people are like, yes. I mean, stories like these hit a cultural nerve. Why? Because we are exhausted. I, don't, I know some of you pretty well. Most of you, I don't know all that well. But what I can safely, I think, assume about, maybe not all of us, but what I think I can safely assume about most of us in this room is that life is exhausting. There's a lot going on. Your calendars are full. You often find yourself tired and weary and at the end of your rope. We're exhausted and we want to stop. Many of us want to stop. Not stop living meaningful lives. No, we want to give our energy and our time to stuff that's really meaningful. But we, we would like to, if at all possible, we would like to cease from uh, the sort of endless rut of do, do, do to the point of exhaustion. We want rest. And in fact, we are trying. Some of these numbers might shock you, but recent data shows us that the average American, maybe not here where we live, I don't know, uh, but recent data shows us that the average American spends 5.2 hours a day in leisure. Some of you are like, there's no way. Don't blame me. That's the data. 5.2 hours a day on leisure. That averages out to about one-third of your waking moments. Again, maybe that's not you. I would assume that that data is different in a place like this that we call home. But the average American spends 5.2 hours a day on leisure. On average, the average American spends about three hours a day consuming entertainment, whether that's traditional television or streaming a TV show or a movie or scrolling the internet, um, not for work, but just for enjoyment or entertainment or pleasure. The average American spends about one hour a day socializing and about 32 minutes a day exercising or playing sports. Some of you feel guilty right now. I feel I don't do that for 30 minutes a day. So about 5.2 hours a day on leisure, the average American. And yet at the same time, the average American, uh, 60% of Americans say that they are more tired today than they've ever been. Some of us can relate, yeah? 77%, 77, almost 8 out of 10 American workers today say that they have or are currently experiencing some form of burnout in the workplace. Fascinating. Last Sunday, we started a brand new series called Work Hard, Rest Easy. And we kicked off the series last Sunday by exploring work, by exploring vocation, and the fact that we are called to a vocation. And that sometimes, because of a variety of reasons, but biblically speaking, because of sin and brokenness and the fact that we live in a world in turmoil and upheaval, work is hard. And so in many ways, the fact that we feel tension, the fact that work is not easy, the fact that we feel exhausted and tired and weary should not surprise us. This is a normal part of being human in our world today. And yet, what we discovered last Sunday is that there is a beauty to work, that there is a way in which to infuse our work with meaning so that it becomes not just a job, whatever it is we do, whether it's raising a family or teaching or starting a business or coding or construction or whatever it might be, there is a way to infuse it with meaning in such a way that it's no longer a job, but it becomes a vocation, an expression of your voice to the world for God's glory and for the good of the world. That's where we started last Sunday. Now today, I want to get to not the other side of it, but these two things dance together. I want to talk about rest. And this is so pertinent for us because we need it. I don't need to set this up. Everybody in this room, I think when I say that, you can all immediately relate. We need rest. 
Let me show you the image of some ancient tablets. These seven tablets make up uh, what is called the Enuma Elish. And the Enuma Elish is in 18th century BC, so 1800 years before the birth of Christ, ancient. The Enuma Elish is an 18th century BC story, and it's a Babylonian story, this ancient Near Eastern culture. And it is the Babylonian uh, creation myth. It's the Babylonian version of how the gods made the world. Now, it's a very convoluted and fascinating story. You could read all about it online if you're interested. But basically, the Enuma Elish, the story of how the gods created the world according to the ancient Babylonians, it culminates in a civil war of the gods. In Babylonian pagan religion, there isn't one true God. There are many gods. And these many gods battle one another. And this civil war between the gods culminates in a battle between two specific gods, Marduk and Tiamat. You could see the image here. Marduk and Tiamat battle each other. And then eventually Marduk defeats Tiamat and becomes the king of the gods, the god of gods. So according to this Babylonian creation myth, Marduk is the god above all gods. And in his victory, Marduk then decides to create human beings. But he does not create humans out of love. He creates humans to be slaves. Marduk, this Babylonian god, creates humans. That's how creation unfolds. He creates humans so that the humans can do the work so that the gods can rest. Let me read for you one line that Marduk speaks in the Enuma Elish. I will establish a savage. Man shall be his name. Verily, savage man I will create. He shall be charged with the service of the gods that they, the gods, might be at ease. And then the Enuma Elish continues, and it tells us that the story unfolded this way. On the people he, Marduk, brought forth, endowed with life, the service of the gods he imposed. Why? That the gods may be at rest. In the Babylonian creation myth, and in basically every pagan creation myth in the ancient world, Gods create humans to labor and toil and slave away so that the gods might not have to do the work and they could rest. This isn't just Babylonian creation myth. This is true throughout the ancient world. Almost every creation story, every pagan creation story in the ancient world has some version of this where the gods create humans as slave labor so that the gods themselves could rest and be at ease. But the biblical story of creation, the one true story of the one true God who makes a good world tells a different story, a startlingly different story. Genesis 1, what does it tell us? So God created humankind in his image. We talked about this last Sunday. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God does what? God blessed them. And then in Genesis chapter 2, we read, Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished. This is after God has made a good new world. The heavens and the earth were finished, and all their multitude. And on the seventh day, God had finished the work he had done, and he, God, rested on the seventh day from all the work that who had done? That he had done. And God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it. He made it holy. He set it apart because on it, on the seventh day, God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. God creates, the one true God in the biblical story, the one true story of creation, God does not create humans as slave labor. God creates humans as the culmination of his creative act. In other words, God does not make humans first to tell them to make everything else so that God God would not have to work. No, 
in the creation story of the Bible, it's flipped. God does the work of making a good world. And the culmination of that work is humans. And yes, if you go back to last Sunday's teaching, he creates those humans to now partner with him in bringing about more good in the world. Yeah, humans are made for work. But God does not make humans to do the work so that he wouldn't have to. God does the work, he initiates creative action, and then he invites humans to work alongside him, to partner with him in bringing about more and more good in the world. God blesses the humans, and he blesses the seventh day, because on that day he rested. Yes, we are created for work, but in the biblical story, in the one true story, the one true God of the universe does not make us for, uh, he does not make us to work for rest, he creates us to work from rest. In the ancient pagan creation myths, the gods create humans to labor and toil and slave away to provide rest for the gods. But in the biblical creation story, the one true God creates and blesses humans to rest and then to partner with him in creating a good world. My friend A.J. Swoboda in his fantastic book, Subversive Sabbath, says this, Striking as it is, Adam and Eve's first full day of existence was a day of rest, not work. You ever think about that? God creates humans, and the first thing they step into is not Monday, it's Sunday. Right? Adam and Eve had accomplished nothing to earn this gratuitous day of rest. God's nature always gives rest first, And then work comes later. I mean, think about the rhythm of life. I've been working very hard for the last 20 plus years of my life. I worked kind of hard in high school and in middle school. If you go back to elementary school, I I did not work hard at all. I didn't do anything. You go earlier than that to the age that my kids are now, and it's like, I do all the work. My kids, you know what I mean? Like, you think about the rhythm and you keep going back. Before all of it, where was I? I was in my mother's womb for nine months, doing nothing, just being fed, becoming a human, hearing my mother's voice, confused probably, what is this, you know? You re- every human rests for months before you ever even enter into the world. You think about life. Again, we, those of you who are adults in the room have been adults for a while. You've been working really hard, some of you for decades and decades. But before that, you didn't. I mean, you worked hard in grad school or college or high school. You kind of worked hard in middle school, elementary school. It was like hit or miss. You know, you were a toddler, you didn't do anything. You just like lounged around, kind of did your thing, your parents or your caretakers, whoever took care of you, and that was life. This is the rhythm God has instilled into human experience. We work from rest, not for rest. In fact, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, what we just read, when it says that God rested on the seventh day, that word rested in Hebrew, the original language of the text, It is the verb form of the noun rest, which in Hebrew is the word Shabbat, from which you and I get the English word Sabbath. Sabbath. And the Hebrew word Shabbat, the English word Sabbath, very simply put, means to stop or to cease. To stop or to cease. So God creates a good world. He creates humans as the culmination of his creation. And then he doesn't enslave them to labor. He stops. He ceases. And with humans, he rests. A.J. Swoboda, again, he says, the Sabbath teaches us that we do not work to please God. Rather, we rest 
Because God is already pleased with the work he has accomplished in us. To this very day, Orthodox Jews observe, they remember and observe the Sabbath, the Shabbat, from sundown on Friday to sun uh, to nightfall on Saturday. This 24-hour cycle where Orthodox Jews still literally stop and they cease. And when they observe the Sabbath from sundown on Friday to nightfall on Saturday, when they begin the weekly rhythm of resting in the Lord, they light two candles. And they light these two candles to remember, to commemorate two key commands in the Bible. Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. So they light the first candle to remember. And then Deuteronomy 5, verse 12, and we'll read more of it here in a moment, but Deuteronomy 5, 12 begins, observe the Sabbath by keeping it holy. So they light the second candle to observe. To remember and to observe. These are the commands in the Bible when it comes to the Sabbath. But why? Why remember? Why observe? What is the significance? Again, back to Exodus chapter 20. Remember the Sabbath. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he, God, rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. We Sabbath in order to remember that God himself, the God of the universe, who is almighty, all-powerful, totally capable, never, never runs out of strength or energy or ability. Even God rested on the Sabbath, seventh day and he hallowed it. He made it holy. He set it apart. And so we Sabbath to remember that resting is a holy, God-ordained rhythm. To remember. And then Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 12, and then I'll read verse 15. Observe the Sabbath. Don't just remember it in your mind. Observe it. Or another way to put it, practice the Sabbath with your body. Observe the Sabbath. Why? You were slaves in Egypt. Remember, this text is being written at a time when God has rescued the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and is leading them into the promised land full of freedom. Freedom in him. You were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath. We also Sabbath in order to observe or practice the story of God's rescue, that just as he rescued the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, so he has rescued us, you and me, those of us who are followers of Jesus, he has rescued us out of sin and death, and he has rescued us out of the plight of self-sufficiency. And here's the thing. In both of these texts, here's what's really interesting. Ultimately, Sabbath isn't primarily about us. Yes, it gives us rest, but it's not really primarily about you and me. It's about God. Exodus 20.10, the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, to the Lord your God. On it, you shall not do any work. Deuteronomy 5, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, on it you shall not do any work. In many ways, we, we need rest. You and I know that, right? And God has instilled this sort of rhythm of resting every week so that our bodies get what he designed our bodies to need, to sit back and to breathe and to revel and delight in God's presence. I'll talk about that more in a second. But first and foremost, we don't Sabbath 
for us. I know that feels countercultural. It's like, no, it's totally for me. I got I to gotta binge that Netflix show. I need to finish beef or whatever, whatever it is you're watching, right? And um, we think that's what Sabbath means. Even Christians think that's what Sabbath means. My life is crazy and Sabbath is just leisure. I'll talk more about that in a moment. But biblically speaking, yes, Sabbath provides you and your body the rest it needs, the rest God has designed you to need. But in its essence, you Sabbath not for you, first and foremost. You and I, as followers of Jesus, we Sabbath to the Lord. We Sabbath to remember and observe the truth that we belong to God and the entire earth does as well. The Jewish rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, in a fantastic little book called The Sabbath, he says this, not a Christian, Jewish, but this is profound. He says, six days a week, we wrestle with the world, wringing profit from the earth. But on the Sabbath, we especially care for the seed of eternity planted in the soul. The world has our hands, but our soul belongs to someone else. Six days a week, we seek to dominate the world. On the seventh day, we try to dominate the self. There's a particular rhythm of rest, the way people here in Silicon Valley think about rest. For most of us, it looks something like this, whether your work is, again, in tech or construction, or teaching, or caring for your family, raising children, whatever it might be, for most of us, it looks something like this. Now, now by Monday, I don't mean literal Monday. Some of you have Monday off. I just mean like whatever feels like Monday. You know what I'm saying? Maybe your work week begins on Wednesday. Well, that's your Monday. You know, like Monday is coming. Oh my goodness. The weekend is over. It often looks like this here in Silicon Valley. Whatever our Monday is, we begin to labor and toil. And then throughout the week, whatever your week looks like, you just are overwhelmed with exhaustion. But the saving grace, you believe, is that the weekend is coming. And then when you get to the weekend, what do you do? You plunge yourself into meaningless leisure. And I'm not saying we do this all the time, but if you were to take inventory of how much um, leisure time you have and what you fill that time with, if you and I were being totally honest with ourselves, it would vary depending on the person, but I think all of us would agree, yes, I probably fill a lot of my free time with stuff that not, not that it's not good or helpful or fun or even restful in some ways. I just mean we fill so much of that time with stuff that in the big picture, in the big scheme of things, isn't really that meaningful. Like it's not all that bad to binge watch that show. It's not all that bad to spend all of your extra income trying to eat through as many Michelin stars as you can. It's not all that bad, right, to get obsessed with that one hobby that is so fun, right? But if you're talking about the end of your life and on your tombstone, if it were to describe how you spent your leisure time, how much of the stuff you fill that time with would, would be fitting for a tombstone? Right? Like there's so much we do. Again, that isn't bad. I'm not even saying we should erase it or eliminate it from our lives. There's just a lot that we give a lot of time and energy and resources to that isn't really that meaningful in the big scheme of things. But the rhythm of Sabbath looks different. The rhythm of Sabbath looks like this. It begins on Sunday. Now, for many of us, that means literally Sunday as we gather with God's people. But for some of us, it might not be literally Sunday. I just mean the day before your work week begins, whenever that day is. That, think of that as Sunday. The rhythm of biblical Sabbath begins this way, that whenever you have time off, the day before you begin your work week, you begin with Sabbath. You begin with intentional time, stopping and ceasing to be with the Lord. I'll talk more about this in a second. And what that can do is it can thrust you into a week 
not of exhaustion. Yes, you will be weary. Yes, work is hard. That's not, I'm not saying work will become easy, but there is a way in which, and this was our talk last Sunday, there is a way in which when you begin with God, your work, no matter how hard it is, can be infused with a new sense of meaning and purpose. And as you grow weary in doing meaningful work, you arrive at whatever your weekend might be, and instead of just meaningless leisure, you can begin to fill it with meaningful rest as you usher your way to Sabbath. And what do I mean? What do I mean? How does this even work? A few thoughts. If you want to, instead of indulging in meaningless leisure, but instead... Find a rhythm of real Sabbath, ceasing from the work in order to be with the Lord and experience meaningful rest. Here are a few thoughts. Sabbath is not an escape from work. Sabbath is an intentional entering into God's presence. You are not running away from the toil of your labor. You are running to The presence of God. This is one of the reasons why Orthodox Jews light candles. It is a visual reminder that God is in this place. And I am here with the Lord. Sabbath is not primarily about entertaining ourselves. Sabbath is about delighting in God's goodness and grace. This can often meet mean a delicious meal shared with family or friends. It can often mean um, some of the stuff you love, a, a, a beautiful hike together as you sort of delight in God's creation. But it's not entertainment. And again, I want to be careful here. What I am not saying, you guys, is don't entertain yourself. Yeah, entertainment is fine. Um. In fact, I'll give you a good example. Uh, I see my friends, the Burks, right here, Kyle and Ruthie, and they're in our life group with a few others who I think are in the room. Um, Like a few weeks ago, uh, Jenny and I had plans with the Burks and a couple of other couples, and the original plan was we were going to go watch the new Ant-Man movie. Um, And then we read reviews, and then we were like, maybe we shouldn't watch that movie. And then we all realized we're old people, and the showtimes were at like 8 p.m. It's like a two and a half hour movie. We were like, maybe we really shouldn't watch that movie. And it was a night where all of us had gotten childcare, so we didn't have kids. And we were like, yeah, maybe we really, really shouldn't go watch that movie. And instead, the Burks and a couple other couples just came to our house, and we did like a potluck, and we broke bread, and we ate and drank good wine, and had like long conversations till 9 p.m. when we all wanted to go to bed, you know, or whatever. (laughs) We're like, okay, it's 9. Bedtime? Bedtime, everyone? (laughs) Um, And it was so much better than entertaining ourselves because it was communal, and it was human, and we ate together, and we talked about like unimportant stuff and important stuff and everything in between. And we were communing with one another. You know what I'm saying? There's a difference between entertainment and delighting in God's goodness and grace in the midst of community. That's a distinction when it comes to Sabbath. Which, of course, leads to the, the, the big umbrella distinction. Sabbath is not meaningless leisure, like I said. It is about meaningful rest. So if you want God by his spirit to pull you, little by little, there's, there's no like magic pill, by the way. You're not going to listen to a 35-minute teaching, and then all of a sudden tomorrow you're like, oh my gosh, I feel so rested. That's not how it works, right? You don't hammer your way to a new life. You chisel your way, little by little. So you got to stick with it. But there is a way in which you can implement the rhythm of Sabbath in your life, real Sabbath in your life, in such a way that your work becomes more meaningful. And yes, you are weary, but you are not exhausted of soul. That path is before you. It is more accessible than you might know. 
So let me give you a couple of practical suggestions for Sabbath. And if you want to take a photo of this, or if you want me to email this to you, just email me, um, and, and I'd be happy to send you any of this. First, choose a day, set a reminder, and commit. So if you, um, you know, are, if you are married or you've got kids or something, obviously you've got to work this out with your family. Maybe you've got roommates and you want to do this with your roommates, or maybe you, you don't. You live independent on your own. Great. Whatever it is, choose a day, a week, uh, like a day during the week, whenever it is. Saturday is what works for Jenny and I and our kids. That's our Sabbath day together as a family. But choose a day, set a reminder, literally put it on your calendar or like your alarm clock or something. 8 a.m. on Friday morning, my alarm goes off and it's my cue. I am Sabbathing with the Lord, whatever it is, and commit to it. Another suggestion, organize your schedule around the Sabbath, not the other way around. What I mean by this is often we're like, yeah, Sabbath, this sounds great, Jay, I'm going to do it. And then you just let life happen and you're like, okay, when do I have time this week to Sabbath? If you, if you take that approach, I can guarantee you the answer will be never. Because there is enough in life that buys for your attention and your, um, your energy that it will choke Sabbath out. So commit to a day and then organize your schedule around that day. Another thought, embrace Sabbath as the start, not the end of your week. So often we're like, you know, American culture is like, I'm working for the weekend, right? It's like my, work, my week starts when I begin the grind and I'm working so I can escape that and get to the weekend. No, for followers of Jesus, our week starts with the Lord. And from there, everything follows, including your labor, your work, your effort. Um, create intentional practices that remind you of God's presence, his goodness, and his grace. Maybe it's the lighting of candles. Maybe it's a commitment to share a good home-cooked meal together. For, for my family, now that the sun is out, we're so happy because we couldn't do this when it was raining. But uh, for my family, Jenny and myself and our two young kids, our rhythm is a hike. We cook a good meal and then we hike together in a, on a little trail near our house. We do that every Saturday that we can. And then again, if possible, practice Sabbath in community, whether it's your family or your roommates or some friends or your life group. See if others will join you and say, hey, can we commit to this together? Spend time together. That Friday night with my friends was like an unexpected Sabbath for me. And yes, I didn't get to bed that night till 10 p.m., which you guys, that's, my body is not ready for that. But I was so energized, you know, so energized. Um, one other resource I want to give you, if you want, you can pull out your phones, our friends at Practicing the Way, um, my dear friend John Mark Comer, it's his organization, uh, they offer spiritual practices. If you go to their website, it's all free, I think you've got to sign up with your email or something, but if you scan that QR code, it'll take you to Practicing the Way's website, and they have an entire robust Sabbath practice where some of this stuff will be in there, as well as a variety of other exercises and practices. I would highly encourage you to check that out. <clears throat> the writer Justin Huffman says that no amount of vacationing, streaming entertainment, or social media escapism will give us true rest. Running to Christ, submitting to his provision and direction, is the only real and lasting Sabbath for the soul. I know you're tired. I know you're weary. But there is rest for you, and it's closer than you think. And it's in Jesus. I'm going to invite um, Les and the team to come back up. We're going to sing and respond here in a moment. But um, let me tell you a story, and then I'm going to give you a few moments to rest in Jesus, even in this room together. Uh, in February of 2014, there was this couple, and they owned some property up in the Sierra Nevadas. And in February of 2014, this couple was up on their property in the Sierra Nevadas. They were walking their dog, and they saw um, something strange underneath a tree. And so they, it's their property. So they walked over to take a look. It was like, what is that thing? And um, some dirt was piled on it, but I guess maybe one of the dogs or some animals had sort of excavated the dirt a little bit, and they saw the top of this little weird opening, and they saw this. I'll show you the image. 
And they stumbled upon, this was one can, but they stumbled upon several mid-19th century cans full of gold coins. There were 1,427 coins in total. They were dated between the years 1847 and 1894. And once they cleaned off all the dirt and dust, these gold coins were in mint condition. Mint condition. And they added up the face value, the literal face value of these coins, you guys, and it was $27,000 worth of gold coins. But then... They cleaned off the gold coins and they took it to one of those like antiques roadshow type people, you know, who's like historian, they know. These coins, because of their rarity and because of their pristine condition, they eventually landed at a valuation of $10 million. $10 million. This treasure covered in dirt right there on their property, right in front of them. This is the gift of Sabbath. Treasure hidden in plain sight. It is right in front of you. I am telling you, it is right in front of you. While the world busies itself in a mad rush to claim stuff, Sabbath is the gift of reclaiming time, which is the one commodity every person on the planet, rich or poor, has in equal measure every moment of every day. All of us get 24 hours every single day. The treasure of Sabbath is the opportunity to exchange our exhaustion for rest, our anxiety for peace, and our pursuit of meaningless things for the presence of Christ himself. So if this is you, weary and exhausted, burdened and tired, and at the end of your rope, remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 11, come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I will give you Sabbath. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I want to read for you Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this text in the, um, in the message paraphrase. But as I do, I would like for everybody in the room, we'll dim the lights here and we'll sing here in a moment, but I'd like for everybody in the room just to close their eyes. Close your eyes. Whether you want to practice this with us or not is up to you, but I just, I would love every eye closed in the room. And just begin to breathe deeply. Breathe deeply and at ease. And hear these words of Jesus to you. Are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion or work or meaningless pursuits? Come to me, Jesus says. Get away with me and you will recover your life. I, Jesus, will show you how to take real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you will learn to live freely and lightly. Continue to breathe with eyes closed and rest in Jesus for a few moments. Then we'll sing Pastor Jay Kim, lead pastor of Westgate Church in San Jose. This has been the Church of the Week, showcasing churches and pulpit ministries from across the greater San Francisco Bay Area. To nominate your congregation for Church of the Week, please email us the name and address of your pastor and church, along with a link to your church's website to Church of the Week at SalemSF.com. Again, that's the name and address of your pastor and church, along with a link to the website and email to churchoftheweek at salemsf.com. While all submissions will be considered, not every submission is guaranteed airtime. Thank you for joining us today, and be sure to tune in again next week at this time for the Church of the Week. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.